WTEL podcasts are powered by Stanley Steamer Air Duct Cleaning, Delaware's clean air experts. Call 1-800-STEAMER. But also the political impulses in our country, such a great divide, a great abyss, even among women in our country. What about the conservative women who support Judge Kavanaugh, who can't uh, necessarily uh, paint them with a broad brush? Uh, There are some nuances. Nonetheless, uh, clearly a stark divide between them and many other women in this country. Emma Green, staff writer covering the intersection of politics, religion, and policy, a senior associate editor of The Atlantic with us live, talked to women uh, in Georgia. Emma, what did you find? So I spoke over the last couple of days with women from roughly a dozen states who are all very hooked into their local and state politics. They're all conservative movement activists or GOP officials. And without exception, they all expressed an extraordinary amount of anger at what they see as a politicized Supreme Court process that has railroaded Brett Kavanaugh with accusations that they don't find to be credible that ultimately shows just how partisan this whole process has become. And when you say uh, did not find it to be credible, uh, did they suspend judgment until after they heard from Dr. Ford and from Judge Kavanaugh, or were they staunchly of that opinion nearly 100% even before that proceeding? It varied among them. Some of them clearly seemed to go into the hearings with their mind already made up. There was one woman who I asked, uh, she participated in a in a rally for Brett Kavanaugh before the hearing, and I asked her whether anything could have changed her mind. So she kind of paused uncomfortably and then said if there had been corroborating evidence, she might have changed her mind. But there were other women who essentially said they went in, they were very skeptical of Brett Kavanaugh, they thought that sexual allegations were very serious and wanted the abuse, if there were abuse, to be dealt with. And ultimately, they just didn't find Christine Blasey Ford's story to really be that compelling, in part because they found that she had a lack of corroborating evidence. Well, what about if you had pointed out that uh, experts in this area say repeatedly victims often cannot give uh, precise timetables and uh, every little detail, but the thrust of the violation is, is there in their mind indelibly and might have impacted their life very negatively, that if you hold such a high standard of evidence, you're going to discourage women from coming out. You're going to oppress women. You're going to um, put us back into the dark ages. Certainly, I think the level of knowledge about those intricacies of sexual assault and trauma reporting isn't shared by everyone. I talked, for example, with a prosecutor in Michigan who is an expert in trying to raise awareness around these kinds of crimes and what happens when victims come forward. And he said many of those very things, that victims often remember sporadic details, they'll remember very specific things that seem random to an outside observer, but in fact show and corroborate the story of what's happening. So I'm not sure everyone has the capacity to look with those expert eyes. I do think that one thing these women are pointing to is the fact that Rachel Mitchell, who was the prosecutor hired by Republicans to question Christine Blasey Ford, largely concluded that she didn't find Christine Blasey Ford's testimony to be compelling. Of course, the level there would have been whether there had been enough evidence to uh, bring an indictment, and uh, that's a legal question. Uh, Let me ask you one other thing. You didn't cover in your article. I don't know whether you'd be able to answer this or not, Emma. But putting aside the sexual accusations, I mean, here we have a young man who had all the benefits of life, went to a very expensive school, and apparently, uh, I I don't think anyone can doubt, uh, he and his friends 
uh, became drunk and did not seem to fear the consequences with impunity. And the very idea that, you know, if you're a, a, a kid in the Midwest or the South and you're, you're, you're doing your damnedest to get through school and get good grades, make your parents proud of you, you don't want to get into trouble, that just on those socioeconomic grounds, uh, the Judge Kavanaugh that we've seen, again, forgetting the sexual part for a moment, would be so different from the average Republican traditional religious voter in the South I guess, in a way, it's it's also the difference between Donald Trump and a lot of his supporters. I do think that despite the differences in class and upbringing that you've pointed out, a lot of Republicans identify with the Kavanaugh's. They see them as a family that's upright. They're involved in their religious community in the Catholic Church in Bethesda, Maryland. Many people mentioned to me the fact that during his testimony, he talked about his daughter, Liza, who asked to pray for Christine Blasey Ford in advance of the hearing, and they resonated with that. So even though perhaps there's a distance and elitism that pervades all nominees to the Supreme Court, basically without exception, I do think that people have been able to rally around him and find a way to identify with him because they feel that he's an upright man who's been besmirched. And I suppose it's too nuanced to go into those yearbook entries and whether there's any plausible way to interpret them other than they had a sexual connotation. If you want to talk about religion, not exactly upholding traditional uh, Catholic moral on sexuality. I do think that there's some irony here in the sense that there's patterns of behavior that we've seen that have come out through these hearings that don't really accord to the way that even very conservative people would want their children to be brought up. And this has largely turned into a partisan food fight where Republicans say that it's irrelevant to raise the heavy drinking and carousing culture of a 1980s era prep school. And Liberals say that this is evidence of the kind of culture that fosters sexual assault and abuse. So everything here, I think, is being viewed through partisan lens. Emma, you're, you're kind of young, but uh, you've been around and uh, you grew up in the South in Tennessee. Uh, do you think that attitudes would have been this stark 20, 25 years ago? Uh, of course, that brings us to Clarence Thomas, and there were fairly uh, stark attitudes even then. But you know where I'm going here? Just the idea that the abyss, the gulf, the ph- philosophical difference is even broader than it used to be. Of course, once upon a time, Tennessee had Democratic senators. Yeah, I think Tennessee, like many other southern states, has gone through a pretty radical political reinvention, flipping to be pretty red. But in general, I think we've seen in this time, broader than Kavanaugh, a a sort of reversal of fortunes and and alignments. You know, for example, during the Clinton years, we saw evangelicals and right-wing Christians being the prime condemners of what they saw as Clintonian immorality, all of his sleeping around with women and taking advantage. And now we see in polling that white evangelicals specifically are more forgiving of leaders who have committed uh, sexual assault or who have had impropriety in their marriage than basically any other group. So that's an inversion. And I think the lesson here is that partisanship is a hell of a drug. And <laughs> in general, people in America tend to identify with and believe in the party line. I, I know you didn't uh, ask anybody this, but I just got to ask you, do you think it would be possible to find a person 
who honestly, you know, God-fearing, would have uh, rejected uh, the elevation of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court because of what was uh, alleged about him, would have rejected the Clintons' favored impeachment and conviction, would not have favored Hillary, and would not want Kavanaugh on the high uh, court. Consistency. I think that would be really hard to find because, as you've pointed out, those different instances have crossed the party lines. And I think this comes down to what is, to me, the greatest political question of our time. Different people from different sides of the aisle see truth fundamentally differently. And that makes it very difficult to come to a consensus on an act of wrongdoing. And it also makes people feel as though they are being consistent because they don't believe the allegations against Clarence Thomas. They don't believe the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh, but they do believe the allegations against, for example, Bill Clinton. Yeah, maybe we'll have a show of hands. Bring a listener in who is consistent in all those. Okay. Emma Green, The Atlantic, thank you so much for joining us.